good evening, everybody, um, and welcome to uh, the UCL Institute of the Americas. It's nice, it's nice to see everyone here for our 2018 Richard Neustadt Lecture um, on American politics. Uh, my name is Nick Willem, and I'm lecturer here in the United States Political History. Um, and the Neustadt Lecture is delivered annually on a topic relating to American politics, and it's named... Um, to mark the contributions of the political scientists, uh, the scholar in particular of presidential politics, and also an advisor to Presidents Truman, Kennedy and Johnson, Richard Neustadt. Um, and I think Neustadt's legacy is important to the Institute of the Americas, um, most specifically because we are home in a variety of ways to what I perceive to be the quite vibrant study of US politics in, in various forms. We have a really healthy... MA program in US studies, and it's nice to see so many of our students here this evening. Uh, we have um, a whole uh, host of excellent um, PhD graduate students in US political history and political studies of one sort or another. Um, we're the home to uh, the UK's most prominent uh, presidential historian, Ewan Morgan. Um, so it's really nice to be here um, celebrating uh, the legacy of, of Richard Neustadt for another year. Uh, not least because I think the, the way that, that politics, the study of politics, the study of US politics in particular gets done here at the Institute is not just via political science and traditional political history, but also about thinking about the overlaps between politics and social, cultural and intellectual history. And with that in mind, I think the perfect person to be delivering our Newstat lecture this evening is, is David Sahat who is um, an Associate Professor of History at Georgia State University and for this academic year also the John G. Winnant Professor of American Government at Balliol College at the University of Oxford. Um, and David's expertise overlaps American intellectual history, American political history and the study of cultural life um, and we'll see that uh, very effectively I think in his, in his lecture this evening. Um, David has... Uh, published two uh, brilliant and very well-received books. Uh, the first, The Myth of American Religious Freedom, published by Oxford University Press in 2011, uh, which won the Frederick Jackson Turner Award from the Organization of American Historians. Um, and then more recently, published by Simon & Schuster in 2015, The Jefferson Rule, How the Founding Fathers Became Infallible and Our Politics Inflexible. And he tells me there were several other titles potentially for that book before it was published under that one. Um, but it's a, it's a fantastic uh, reflection on the significance of the founding generation for contemporary American politics. Um, and that's what he's going to be talking to us about this evening. I should also make one more plug uh, of David's before I hand over to him. He also hosts a brilliant podcast. Uh, it's called Mind Pop. And for anyone who is interested in American history, American politics, um, hearing intelligent people talk about these topics... Uh, I would thoroughly recommend that you check it out. I think they're almost at 40, you're almost at 40 yeah. episodes, right? Yeah. Um, so with, with that um, in mind, I hope you'll join me in welcoming David to deliver his lecture this evening, which is entitled Founders Chic, Why Americans Think the Founding Fathers Have All the Answers. So I'd like to talk to you today about the founding fathers in American politics. And by that, of course, I do not mean the actual men that founded the American government, that framed the Constitution, and that set up its institutions in the late 18th century. I do not mean that. Instead, I'm going to talk to you about the founding fathers as they exist in contemporary American political debate. 
And I assume that all of you have heard some politician at some time or another gesture to or invoke or otherwise make use of the Founding Fathers. You, you don't have to listen to very much of uh, American political debate before this comes up. And I sometimes wonder, you know, if you don't know anything about the Founding Fathers and you, the entirety of what you got was through American politics, what would you think that they were? You know, what would you think that they actually believed? I did a little sort of newspaper uh, survey not too long ago, and I found the founding fathers, and this is like in 10 minutes of looking, invoked in support of, short list, it could go on for a while, limited government, gun rights, progressive taxation, multicultural pluralism, etc., etc., etc. Now, those things don't obviously go together at all. Really. Republicans do this a lot. You can see this in the first two. Gun rights, limited government. Democrats do this as well. To give you just a few more examples, the 2016 election, Donald Trump, he said this. Global free trade is a direct affront to our founding fathers who wanted America to be strong, independent, and free. Okay. During the same campaign, Hillary Clinton, almost in response to Trump, though not necessarily in response to Trump, she said this. Our founders embraced the enduring truth that we are stronger together, which is, of course, her campaign theme. Now, it doesn't take a political genius to see that in both cases, the founding fathers are being remade into the politician who is invoking them. They're either the originators of America first, with its overtones of whiteness, of isolationism, and of nationalism, or they're the originators of multicultural egalitarianism, who believe that American strength lies in unity through diversity. That's the message that Clinton and Trump would have us believe. And some version of that message, properly tailored to the actual political agenda of whoever is invoking the founders, is pretty much always what happens when the founders are invoked. Now, I'm an historian. So my mind has been warped by, you know, historical knowledge. So I don't really know. But I would think it's obvious that the founders are neither America first strategists nor multicultural egalitarians. They were 18th century men. No more, no less. And again, you don't have to know much from a historical perspective to know that there's really no obvious intellectually credible way to finish the sentence, the founding fathers thought, fill in the blank. There just isn't. The founding fathers were one of the most divided political generations in American politics, really with the exception, the only generation that obviously surpasses them is the Civil War gener generation. They disagreed about just about everything. They disagreed about the prerogatives of the federal government versus the states. They disagreed about whether the federal government could intervene in the economy and what that would look like. They disagreed about the prerogatives of the various branches of the government, executive, legislative, judicial, and how they related to one another. The Constitution, gigantic and vast theater of argument. Their disagreement was so profound that in 1798, people were very credibly talking about civil war. Not a civil war born out of conflict over slavery, but a civil war born out of the essential malevolence of the other side, who were inappropriately using the government for their own ends. And yet, this deeply divided political generation in American politics 
is treated as a group of demigods who had a consensual agreement, who established a shared and fixed body of principle that has then been passed down to future generations that we can't question without risk of ruin. It's very bizarre. Now, I started thinking about these issues first in the 2009 Tea Party, which is getting to be a little while ago now. And my first impulse when confronting the Tea Party was to write a bunch of op-eds. You know, I, I, I tried to write op-eds to show how the Tea Party really didn't understand the Constitution, how they didn't understand American history, how just everything that they thought about the past was just wrong. And then I realized, it's probably not going to work. I mean, it, it was effective for me for blowing off steam, but it's not really going to do all that much. And so I started wondering, you know, where is this coming from? How did we get here? How did this deeply divided generation become a supposedly united group that the Tea Party could invoke? They didn't just start doing this themselves, so where does it come from? And so I started working backwards. I went from the Tea Party to Reagan. I went from Reagan to the 1960s. I went from the 1960s to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or FDR. And by the time I got to FDR, I realized this is the beginning of our modern conversation over the Founding Fathers. And it's that that I'd like to talk to you about today. I think with a lot of things, it's really um, kind of easier to see the problems or the, the elisions in a phenomenon at the very beginning before it becomes normalized and institutionalized and all the rest. And that's certainly true of the debate over the Founding Fathers. Now, FDR, as I'm sure many of you know, was the most important president of the first half of the 20th century. And you don't really obviously think of FDR and the Founding Fathers if you know anything about FDR. He served four terms in office. He established a liberal and progressive consensus that would hold for 40 years and really more after his death. He sponsored uh, a constitutional revolution, many people think, and he made all who came after him, because he was so profoundly transformative, wrestle with his example, whether they agreed with him or not. But one of the most important things about FDR, and I think one of the things that people um, don't appreciate enough, is that what he was was a rhetorical master. He was able to take his policies and to sell them before the public <laughs> by making them, above all, about historical necessity. And you can see this rhetorical mastery from the very beginning of his quest for the presidency in 1932. This is in the midst of the Great Depression. Then-President Herbert Hoover had only reluctantly, and only in a limited way, begun to use the federal government to turn around the crisis of the Depression. And the reason for that, of course, was Hoover, unlike FDR, as I'm going to show you in a second, really had a deep allegiance to the past, as he understood it. He called himself a progressive. He said that he was for progressive individualism. But as a matter of fact, he believed, in his words, in the spiritual, the economic, and the political principles of strictly limited government. And so he worried that using the government into an aggressive, in too much of an aggressive fashion to address the, the depression would undermine this progressive individualism at the heart of the American project as he understood it, because it would create a culture of dependency, because it would mean that people, individuals, didn't rely on, on themselves, they relied on the government, and mostly it would discard the inherited tradition of the past. Now, then-Governor Roosevelt, he was governor of New York, uh, could not have disagreed more. When he looked out over the past, he 
was basically a progressive. He saw a rupture between present conditions and past conditions. And his thinking on the matter was shaped by the previous 30 years of progressive thought. He believed, for example, with the progressive economist Walter Whale, that in Whale's words, a commitment to ancient political ideas will only encumber our modern brains when we're addressing contemporary problems. He agreed with uh, Walter Lippmann, who in 1913, in his classic book, A Preface to Politics, said that government officials couldn't really hope to meet the new challenges of the 20th century with, in Lippmann's words, a few inherited ideas, uncriticized assumptions, a foggy vocabulary, and a machine philosophy that emerged from the founding fathers. It was only through, again in Lippmann's words, a new sense of political values that the burdens of the time could be met. You can see, this is a fairly stark rejection of the past. This is a modernizing move of the highest sort. And for Roosevelt, the times had only become more pressing and the requirement for new ideas more demanding because of the Great Depression. What the Great Depression showed was that the Industrial Revolution, begun in the UK, developed further in the United States and throughout Western Europe, had created a concentration of economic power and the possibility of mass suffering to such a degree that the American political system was now threatened. He put it like this in, 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 a, in a speech to an audience in Atlanta in 1932. The problems are, quote, so complex, so widely distributed over our whole society that tinkering with the old values will not do. I believe that we are at the threshold of a fundamental change in our popular economic thought. In the future, we are going to have to think less about the, the producer and more about the consumer. Now, that change in economic thought would then require huge changes in American governing structures. It would require changes in tax law, changes in corporate law, changes in basically every kind of law, and changes in the administrative and regulatory apparatus that oversaw this entire thing. So in all of this, my point here is that Roosevelt was a progressive modernizer of the highest sort. He believed that government really was in an urgent existential situation. It needed to retool. It had to transform itself. Otherwise, disaster was going to continue to unfold. And so he set up his entire campaign to broadcast his sense of a break from the past. To give you just one example, when he received the Democratic nomination for the presidency in July of 1932, he departed from precedent, very self-consciously so. What had happened up till that point is the convention met, the convention voted, the convention determined the nominee, sometimes after a long process. Then the party leaders then telegraphed the nominee and said, you're our nominee. The guy often wasn't there. He was somewhere else. And then the guy sometimes responded back. In this case, FDR was in New York. The convention was in Chicago, right? He knew it was very likely he was going to be the nominee, but he stayed away because that was what tradition dictated. They then telegraphed him. He telegraphed them back, and he said, hold the convention in session. I'm coming to Chicago, and I'm going to accept the nomination in person. Then he got on a plane from New York to Chicago at a time when plane travel was really rare, and he appeared before the tired but electrified crowd, and he said this. 
Let it be symbolic that I broke traditions. Let it be symbolic that I broke traditions. He was a breaker of tradition. He was a breaker of old and outmoded ideas that no longer made sense. He was not one of those, he said to the convention, who, quote, squint at the future with their faces turned toward the past and who feel no responsibility to the demands of the new time. Quite the opposite, actually. I pledge to you, I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. There's the phrase, to a new deal for the American people. Let us all here assembled constitute ourselves prophets of a new order. That is what FDR was about in 1932. He was a herald of a new order that he promised to bring about. He won, obviously, in 1932. He entered office with tremendous political capital. And then he set about bringing about this new political order in an extraordinary burst of legislative activity. During his first 100 days in office, he passed legislation with his allies in Congress in banking, agriculture, commerce, basically anything that touched the American economy. And his combined initiatives got the nation through the winter of 1933 and 1934. And by early 1934, the sense of crisis that he had inherited began to pass. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because as the sense of crisis faded, critics began to emerge. Critics in particular out of business began to emerge. Because what businessmen were concerned about, rightly, was that Roosevelt sought a fundamental reordering of the American political economy. And they feared that this reordering would affect their power and their profits, which there's no question it would. Irénée Dupont of the Dupont Corporation, who became a leader of this emerging group, wrote a friend in early 1934, it must have now become clear to every thinking man that the so-called New Deal advocated by the administration is nothing more or less than the socialistic doctrine called by another name. So to meet that threat, DuPont enlisted his two brothers, Pierre and Lameau, who then reached out to their friends, who reached out to their friends, and it was collectively decided that they would have a businessman's gathering in July to figure out what to do about the New Deal. Now this eventual meeting was a turning point in the development of the New Deal, and more importantly for the subject of my talk tonight, in the place of the founding fathers in contemporary politics. Because in banding together, this group represented a cross-section of the nation's commercial, legal, philanthropic, journalistic, the, they owned all the newspaper, leadership. I mean, they were a collection of the richest men in the nation. And what they were concerned about, you cannot say this enough, was the protection of their richness. They thought, there is a socialistic thrust, it's going to take away my property, we need to resist it to protect my property. But they were self-aware enough to know that if you start an organization and you say, you know what we're about, I know you little people are suffering, but we have to protect my profits. That's not going to work. That's going to turn off the common man suffering under the Great Depression. So what they decided was they needed, in, in, the, in the, the phrase that was sometimes used as they talked, a moral or an emotional purpose for their organization that went beyond property rights. There was much discussion about how to achieve this. And then a man named W.H. Staten, who was um, one of their, their leaders, 
issued a series of memos. These are planning memos. I found them in the Hagley Museum and Library um, in Delaware. And he said, okay, I have the solution to the problem. If the question is, how do we find another purpose for our organization other than property, it is, the answer is this. Quote, not many issues could command more support or evoke more enthusiasm among our people than the simple issue of the Constitution. The public ignorance concerning it is dense and inexcusable, but nevertheless there is a mighty, though vague, affection for it. The people, I believe, need merely to be led and instructed, and this affection will become almost worship and can be converted into a mass movement. Now again, you cannot say clearly enough that this posture of reverence that he was recommending was entirely fake. He said in the memo itself, of course I want to change the Constitution. I want, for example, to eliminate the 16th Amendment, which allows for progressive taxation, an income tax that hurts the rich more than the poor. He had some other ideas as well. But for their purposes right now, he said, this is what we need to do. We need to act as though, quote, the Constitution is perfect. We do not seek to change it, or to add to it, or to subtract from it. We seek to rescue it from those who misunderstand it, misuse, and mistreat it. And we should remember that he who takes the Constitution for his battle cry has as his allies the fathers of old. It will be of inestimable aid to quote Washington, Franklin, Hamilton, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and other mighty men of the past. This organization was very rapidly incorporated. It was named the American Liberty League. W.H. Staten was the league secretary. And really from that point forward, the league, it, the league followed his recommendations to the letter. It put out pamphlets in the millions claiming, quote, that the Roosevelt administration was, these are all quotes, gnawing at the vitals of the Constitution, wrecking the Constitution, undermining constitutional liberty. It also got some of the best corporate lawyers in the nation together, and it had them draft a brief against the New Deal. And historians have gone back and they've looked at this, and given the people involved and the billable hours involved in particular, this would have been like $100,000 to um, get this brief in 1932, which back in 1932 was real money, real money. But what it did is it took that money, or it took that uh, brief, and it just distributed it free of charge. The first print run was 40,000 copies. The second print run was 30,000 copies. And what that allowed was a business who was kind of chafing under the New Deal, chafing under specific regulations, chafing just because they were chafing, to take the brief to go down the road to a $50 lawyer to say, I want you to file suit against the Roosevelt administration, and here, use this brief. This then paved the way for numerous challenges to the New Deal that sprang up all over the country. And by 1935, early 1935, these were reaching the Supreme Court. The court then began, often by a five to four majority, to strike down parts of the New Deal, which then reinforced the League's narrative. The entire New Deal was in peril. Now Roosevelt, I went to some lengths to show you, remember, is a progressive. He's sitting in the White House getting increasingly upset about this entire thing. It was clear, if you go back and you look at, at, at his responses, he doesn't understand what's happening. He thinks this is entirely crazy. And he got more and more upset 
to the point that in May of 1935, after a particularly devastating decision, he walked into the, uh, where all the press men were gathered and he said, let's make this all on background. And then he launched into an extended tirade against the court that I think closer than anything else articulates his actual position. And his actual position was that the court has lost its mind. Because what the court was doing was it was using what in Roosevelt's notion was an old set of ideas to apply those ideas to the modern world. And in particular, it was using old ideas for what is called the interstate commerce clause. Most of the New Deal regulations were justified by this clause in the Constitution that allows the US Congress to regulate interstate commerce, that is commerce that goes between states. And that was the definition of the court, commerce, Interstate commerce is commerce that moves between states, which, you know, hey, that makes a certain amount of sense, right? Roosevelt was like, no, no, that is not a definition of commerce that makes sense in what he called present-day civilization. Instead, what the court was doing by using this old definition of commerce was it was taking the nation back to the horse and buggy age, direct quote, in other words, the age of the founding fathers. Now, why is this a problem, according to Roosevelt? And by the way, this rant went on for pages, like 15 pages. He's just talking, and the, 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 the uh, reporter, you know, is, is however they were recording it, was recording it the entire time. I mean, he was really, really upset. And the reason he's upset is that if you go back and you look at commerce in 1787, and in particular interstate commerce in 1787, there's not much of it. The entire point, he said, of the interstate commerce problem clause is to generate commerce and then to allow the, the US government to regulate it. The other problem is, is that the founders had no sense of modern business. They had no sense of fair business practices, for example. They had no sense of earning power or buying capacity. They had no sense that the mere production of goods in one state would dramatically affect the market in other states without the goods actually crossing the line, right? If you have a national market, the goods don't have to cross the line. Commerce is generated simply by these corporations that themselves stretched across the line. In other words, this is a direct quote. The whole picture was a different one when the interstate commerce clause was put into the Constitution from what it is now. And he wanted the court to make sense of that, to recognize it, and then to let the New Deal go forward. Now that obviously wasn't gonna happen. And so the Roosevelt administration was in a bind. Because remember, its entire justification was that I'm rejecting the past. We're moving forward and we're reconstructing government. The Liberty League has said, you're rejecting the past. And they said, he said, oh wait, yes I'm rejecting the past, but now he was caught. So he began to cast around, and by the 1930s, the people, not him necessarily, but the people in his administration, began to look to the burgeoning field of propaganda studies in order to make sense of what was going on. If you go back to the early 20th century, there were, there were ministers of propaganda. This was before the, the, the term had been discredited. We might more naturally say messaging. But then what they recognized was, okay, we need a new message. We have to retool in some way. Unfortunately, by the 1930s, the propaganda theorists had, 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 had realized that you know, to effectively sell your message as a politician or a leader, you have to recognize 
two important things. And it was, these were things that the American Liberty League instinctively got, but that Roosevelt had not up to that point got. It is this. First, you need to recognize that every cultural group has its vested values. And remember, politics is about mobilizing groups in favor of your policies, and often different groups in favor of your policies. The second thing you need to remember is that no group likes its values challenged. So if you're selling your policies to a group, you need to sell it to them in a way that makes your policies a champion of their values rather than a um, challenge to their values. Now this becomes especially problematic in politics when you're appealing to different groups. So what do you do? And this is the third genius move of propaganda studies. And that is you find a symbol that is shared by all the people of that group. But that's kind of empty. I mean, it's important that it's empty or not too full so that the groups can kind of read into the symbol what they want. And then you do this. This is what Harold D. Laswell, who is an eminent theorist of propaganda, said. You take this symbol and you engage in, quote, the management of collective attitudes by the manipulation of significant symbols. Now, that's the most important thing that I'm going to tell you tonight, so I'm going to say it again. Propaganda, according to Harold D. Laswell, is the management of collective attitudes by the manipulation of significant symbols, such as, I would hope it would be clear, the Constitution or the Founding Fathers. Now, by 1935, it was clear that the American Liberty League and the conservatives on the court were absolutely winning the propaganda war. And it was not at all clear what the Roosevelt administration was supposed to do in order to find a way out of the mess that it had boxed itself in. So what Roosevelt did first throughout 1935 is he rebuilt his coalition through legislation. This was a burst of legislative activity in the spring and summer of 1935 um, that some historians have called the Second New Deal. It was so significant. It involved, for example, things that you might have heard of. A much expanded jobs program under the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA. It involved a new series of taxes on the wealthy called the Soap the Rich Taxes. It involved the National Labor Relations Act, which allowed for collective bargaining by unions. These were all hugely important. While that was going on, Roosevelt tried out various strategies. And you can go back and look at his signing statements, or go back and look at the speeches that he gave while he was trying to build support. He had no coherent rhetorical justification for anything that he was doing. He would try one thing, he would try another thing, he would combine the two things. And finally, by the end of 1935, he had found out his strategy. And this was important because throughout the entirety of 1935, his poll numbers were falling. And so he's looking ahead, he's got some legislation, he's got a challenge of the richest men of the nation, he's got no coherent narrative, and he needs to turn this ship around. And so what he decided is he was going to go all out. And he was going to use, he, he decided, the State of the Union Address in 1936 to do what in today's terms we would call a pivot. He would just shift in another direction, he would change his messaging, and thereby set the stage for the election of 1936. But he wanted to make sure that this was going to have the highest impact, because there was real concern in his, in, in his administration. And so he requested the nearly unprecedented um, privilege 
of addressing the joint session of Congress at night. The only other occasion in which this had occurred was when Wilson gave his war message to Congress, asking for Congress to enter World War I. So he's going all in for this thing. You might imagine the Republicans complained, but there was nothing much that they could do about it. On the night of the speech, just as he wanted, the chamber was packed. Millions were listening on the radio. He braced himself before the podium, spoke into the radio mics, and then delivered one of the most slashing addresses of his political career. He told the audience that his goal in basically everything that he had done was the maintenance of democratic institutions, not the maintenance of autocracy, and certainly not to be a constitutional usurper. The controversy that had erupted over the New Deal, he said, was not because he was in the wrong. It was because he was at war with a power-seeking minority. That's how he characterized it. His business opponents and the court were an entrenched, an aristocratic faction. But rather than fighting in the open, he said, they hid behind, and I love this phrase, the livery of great national constitutional ideals. He resisted them, and he claimed that in resisting them, he was defending America. Now, up to that point, everything that he said could be squared with what he had said in 1932. But to justify this resistance, he turned entirely. And he no longer spoke of reconstructing and transforming American government to meet the new realities of an industrial age. He no longer spoke as a progressive. He now spoke entirely and very consistently as a conservative. He said that he was trying to conserve what the founding fathers had begun. And in fact, his battle was their battle, which began in the Constitutional Convention of 1787. They had resisted entrenched privilege. He was resisting entrenched privilege. At certain points in the speech, it sounded like he kind of thought he was a founding father. And the American Liberty League was a bunch of Tories. The effect was absolutely electric, and his partisans were totally energized. But the American Liberty League, you might not be surprised to know, they were also completely happy with this, because it was clear now that what Roosevelt was going to do in the 1936 campaign was to fight on their ground. And they had chosen that ground. They were winning on that ground. And so this seemed like a very congenial place to be. But they also recognized that Roosevelt had a potential winner in that, that argument that they were an entrenched and aristocratic minority. They needed some way around this idea that they were um, trying to protect their economic privilege. And so as a rebuttal to Roosevelt's State of the Union, they enlisted Al Smith to give a commentary or a speech in the Mayflower Hotel three weeks after the State of the Union. Now, Al Smith was uh, a four-time governor of New York. He was a Democrat. He was working class. He hated Roosevelt for his own reasons that we won't get into now. So Smith was like, yeah, I'll do that. Sure, absolutely. And this worked on several different levels at once. First, Smith had this raspy and working class voice. You can actually go on YouTube and listen to it. That for the radio audience, remember this is entirely about the radio audience, they're going to listen to that and they're not going to think, oh, the American Liberty League is at war with the common man because Smith was the common man. That's the most important thing there. The second thing was he was a Democrat, so that kind of neutralized the notion that they were just a bunch of Republican supporters. And then the third thing was Smith agreed to, to present this 
in terms of the founding fathers, and to present in particular the idea that Roosevelt was a constitutional usurper. On the night of the event, the place was absolutely packed. Thousands of people had to be turned away. The Mayflower Hotel put chairs in the lobby, and they still turned away 4,000 people. There were lots, millions of people listening on the radio. Smith stepped up to the mic, just like Roosevelt. He thanked them, he introduced himself, and then he immediately launched into this utterly and absolutely blistering attack, claiming essentially that Roosevelt was a political heretic. And that idea of heresy is, is hugely interesting. You'll, you'll see it come up over and over and over again. Remember that Staten said there was a reverence for the Constitution. And we need to turn that reverence into worship and then convert that worship into a mass movement. And Smith followed that basically precisely. He said that Roosevelt had abandoned, quote, the greatest declaration of political principles that ever came from the hands of man, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. Now, from that point forward, he was just done with Roosevelt because he was obviously an apostate and he couldn't be appealed to. But he then turned to the members of Congress who, he said, needed to remember that they had sworn an oath to the Constitution. And to remind them of their oath, he said this, I suggest from this moment forward they, that is congressmen, resolve to make the Constitution again the civil Bible of the United States and pay it the same civil respect and reverence that they would religiously pay the Holy Scripture. Now the audience loved this. They loved this so much that they were clapping too much. And at one point, the organizers had to turn around and go, we're losing the radio time. Please stop clapping. They just, everything about this, they ate it up. And this looked to be the beginning of an absolutely terrific campaign in 1936 because everyone agreed on the central issue. The next several months then were a feverish time for both sides. Roosevelt gave speech after speech denouncing the, the League and the Republican Party as modern Tories. The League put out pamphlets in the millions, in the multi-millions, that claimed that he was a constitutional usurper. But by the summer, it became clear that Roosevelt just had a genius for political rhetoric and a genius for political framing, and really a bully pulpit that could not be matched. And you can see this especially in the Democratic Convention of 1936. And you can also see, when you look at this convention, just how far Roosevelt had gone in four years. The convention that year was held in Philadelphia, obviously, where the Founding Fathers signed the Declaration of Independence. Like in 1932, he decided to accept the nomination in person. But this time, rather than arriving at the last minute by plane, he planned ahead. He had the convention, uh, or the acceptance speech of the convention, in the football stadium of the University of Pennsylvania. And he arrived early by train. On the night of the event, he stood before 100,000 people and he laid down his campaign message that by that point he had honed to utter perfection. The most important thing about this speech, it was clear he was no longer a progressive, at least in rhetoric. In rhetoric, he was a deep and inveterate conservative. He told the partisan crowd that his goal was, quote, to preserve to the United States, to preserve to the United States, the political and economic freedom for which Washington and Jefferson planned and fought. 
And for that reason, the location of the convention in Philadelphia was fitting ground because it enabled the Democratic Party to, in his words, reaffirm the faith of our fathers, to pledge ourselves to restore to the people a wider freedom, to give to 1936 as the founders gave to 1776, an American way of life. And from that point forward, he spoke of his opponents in the American Liberty League as economic royalists. You might have heard that phrase. In other words, they are, in modern terms, what the Tories and what King George were in 1787. The parallels were the same. The fight was the same. The principles at stake were the same. And he was in essential connection with the past rather than trying to overcome and depart from the past. After his speech, cheer after cheer boomed down upon Roosevelt as he rode around the stadium. And for the millions listening on the radio, the election was completely over. The American Liberty League had trouble competing on this symbolic terrain, partly because it was unquestionably a project of the rich. You'll remember in 1934 when it began operating, the leaders had predicted a mass movement. But by 1936, it was apparent there was no mass movement. There was a bunch of very wealthy men and lots of dollars who were protecting their property. Roosevelt had essentially taken their rhetorical strength away from them, and they were never able to get it back. On election night, then, it became apparent how sadly deceived they had been. Roosevelt won the most sweeping victory since James Monroe's unopposed election in 1820. He won every state but two. He won the popular vote 60.8% to the Republicans, 36.5%. He carried so many Democrats with him into the Capitol that the 75 Democratic senators out of 96, the 75 Democratic senators couldn't all fit on their side of the chamber. 12 freshmen had to sit with the Republicans. But Roosevelt had still not beaten the court. And this is where his change in rhetoric became most consequential. His advisors started to advocate for a constitutional amendment. Like, okay, if the New Deal is unconstitutional, we have 75 Democrats in the U.S. Senate. Let's just pass a constitutional amendment. But that would have been hard to do politically. He had just spent the last year, year and a half, talking about the Founding Fathers and the Constitution, how he's going to preserve it. And then the first day in office, he's going to propose a constitutional amendment. Like, that's, that's not going to work out. So what he decided to do was he commissioned a study. Actually, I should say he commissioned a study because there's no study. The study decided that the court was overworked. They had too much on their plate. And so what he decided to do was to ask Congress to help him help the court by allowing him to appoint for every justice over 70 and a half years old another justice up to 15 Right? The theory was that the old codgers were slowing down, and so you, you add a young guy, and then somehow the non-existent work problem is going to get taken care of. Right? Well, I mean, obviously that's absurd. And also, it ran into a real problem. And, and the problem was, no American knew that there were no fixed set of justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. There was nine in 1932. It had been nine since, I believe, the Civil War. He wanted to expand it up to potentially 15, but to many in the American public, that looked like a constitutional amendment because they didn't know. Right? So as a matter of fact, he didn't get around the problem. He began to do um, 
these like kind of campaign events. He, he, he did a, a radio address, for example, called a fireside chat. He had been doing this since uh, his first month in, in office. And he, he was trying to sell this court packing plan. And he said this on the radio, that he was fighting an entrenched plutocracy that had retreated into the confines of the court. Like he no longer pretended that this is about workload. It's not about workload. It's about beating this plutocracy. And in that fight, the issues were not constitutional. The issues were about power. And then he made this very interesting move that I think showed just how far he had gone. He wanted to stress that he was not in any way betraying the founding fathers of the Constitution. And to, to explain that, he said this. I hope that you have reread the Constitution of the United States in these past few weeks. Like the Bible, it ought to be read again and again. It is, it is an easy document to understand when you remember that it was called into being because the Articles of Confederation under the original 13 states tried to operate after the revolution which the original 13 states tried to operate after the revolution showed the need of a national government with power enough to handle national problems. Still, this was not working. His plan went nowhere. He could not disentangle the court as a symbol from the founders as symbols, from the Constitution as a symbol. He had boxed himself in. Now, ultimately, it turned out not to matter. The court plaquing plan never emerged from Congress, but abruptly in April of 1937, the court, realizing that it was facing a serious uh, uh, issue of institutional legitimacy, basically caved. They affirmed the New Deal. They, uh, they approved the National Labor Relations Act, and they used this new notion of interstate commerce that Roosevelt had wanted, basically allowing for the constitutional revolution to go forward. But... And this is the key point, Roosevelt's victory was not in any way clean, and it created problems for later generations. When he initially ran for office, he spoke the frank language of progressivism. By 1936, he no longer did. He now spoke as a conservative. He fought, like the founders, for self-determination and democracy against an entrenched elite. Now, his founders' rhetoric in 1936 did not prevent creative policy solutions, as I think it does now. But it turned out to be significant, because what Roosevelt wound up doing in the course of the 1936 campaign, and really you can see it as, as, as it goes on, when he pro proclaimed, for example, the second Bill of Rights. That's an extension and adaptation in some ways, and in some ways it's framed in the language of freedom, which might not be an appropriate language in order to justify a welfare state. But he's framing it in that language precisely because he's drawing upon the Founding Fathers. So in ratifying then the cynical argument of the American Liberty League, what he did was he admitted, or he at least suggested, that there was a founding consensus that we would have to preserve or the nation would fall into uh, uh, degeneracy. And it's important to point out that neither Roosevelt nor the League leaders actually believed their own rhetoric. It was simply rhetoric to appeal to the masses. But their rhetoric took hold, and slowly it became more than rhetoric, particularly among conservatives. As liberal programs increased throughout the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, opponents of the New Deal became truly committed to what the American Liberty League had said, that the nation was abandoning foundational ideals and was on the path to despotism. By the time of the Civil Rights Movement and Ronald Reagan's political debut, conservatives were mobilized to create a counter-revolution under the banner of the Founding Fathers. From Reagan to the Tea Party to Donald Trump, 
They've invoked the founding fathers in order to mitigate or reverse progressive policies. Democratic politicians, sometimes genuinely, sometimes defensively, have also invoked the founding fathers. And I guess it's hard to know if any of this rhetoric is, is sincere, but ultimately I don't personally think it matters. Because it's still problematic, even if it's sincerely believed, for the same reasons that it's always been problematic. It takes a deeply divided group of people. It assumes that they all agree. It then remakes them into a contemporary image, whether that image be Republican or Democrat. So if there's a takeaway from this talk, the takeaway I think is this. My initial impulse was to rail against this, this rhetoric. I still think it's worth railing against. But I have a quieter impulse now, and it is to understand, you know, how does this work? Why does it work? Where does it come from? And what I say to my American audiences, for political reasons, and I'll say to you for scholarly reasons, is that if you hear a politician invoke the Founding Fathers, or really, if you hear a politician invoke anything about the past, that you need to pause. That is the moment where you absolutely must pause. And you must ask yourself, is this person engaging in the management of collective attitudes by the manipulation of significant symbols? And if the answer is yes, and I would venture to guess that the answer is always going to be yes when the, we're dealing with the Founding Fathers, then that's the point at which the real questions begin. Thank you so much.